we return in our Bibles this morning to our studies in the book of 2 Corinthians. And we come to a, a new division of the letter, which in some ways is sort of a perplexing division in that the subject matter seems to radically change. We, we wonder just how in the world did Paul jump from this lengthy discussion of his relationship with the Corinthians and um, the way in which they are to receive him as their apostle and that to know this mutual joy in one another and comfort in one another and hope and help in one another uh, to this whole matter of the offering that he's taking up for the needy saints in Jerusalem. Um, two chapters on that subject and just how does it fit in? And you know you get into chapter 10 and you know Paul does go back to the subject of those who would be detracting from his apostleship and looking to uh, influence the Corinthian people not to trust him as the, their apostle and drawing attention to all the things they could see as weaknesses in Paul. That, that's really dealt with once again in chapter 10. You know, it's led some people. You know, people, there are people, writers, uh, uh, who maybe don't have much confidence in the way in which the scriptures were preserved. And they will say that... Um, Somebody put in two passages of another letter. Maybe spliced it in there because it seems so so different. Why did Paul do this? The problem with those views is there just simply isn't an evidence of um, any copies of 2 Corinthians that don't include this. It's included in all the manuscripts we presently have. And then I think it may be a question of just overestimating the radical nature of the differences because there's lots of commonalities as well. And uh, I'll just point out that the first verse uh, addresses the question of the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. Well, in chapter 7, we read about the the churches of Macedonia, at least Paul, coming to Macedonia. He says, even when we came into Macedonia, in chapter 7 and verse 5, um, our bodies had no rest and we reflected at every turn and all these things happened until the God who comforts the lowly comforted us by the coming of Titus and Titus's report that Titus gave of the repentance of the Corinthians and so uh, it would be not a, a radical disjuncture uh, to move from the fact well Titus uh, came to Macedonia reported to me that uh, things were different and things were changed and there was full repentance and there's been a real reconciliation and we, we love one another again and we comfort one another again to basically saying now's the time to mention something that is deeply in Paul's heart as he ministers among the Macedonian churches as he ministered really in all the churches of the Gentiles there's a remarkable emphasis that's made upon this offering to the saints in Jerusalem, of the uh, needy saints. Uh, it really occupied a great deal of Paul's time and attention. You see it in the Roman letter, as well as here in 2 Corinthians. You see it in the book of Acts. He came with the offering uh, to the church in Jerusalem as he came to, um, to Jerusalem at the end of the book of Acts. So it does comprise a great deal of apostolic concern. And Paul in Romans, he gives this indication that one of the things he wanted to see is a recognition of the mutual relationships between the the churches of Judea and the churches of the Gentiles. Uh, The Jew and Gentile, where there was perhaps a bit of tension in some of the Gentile churches. How did Jews and Gentiles, with their cultural differences, get along? In terms of diet, in terms of uh, what they're accustomed to, in the ways of 
days and months and years that they observe. Um, how do you get along and not judge one another? And um, so, in this regard of the of the of the Gentile churches that received the gospel, that really came from Jerusalem. It came from Judaism. It came from Old Testament uh, religion. Now opening up to Gentile inclusion that this bringing in of the Gentiles uh, should see their bond with the Jewish roots in which their faith had emanated and uh, part of that was to dig deep into their pockets and show their love to the needy saints in Jerusalem. Now part of the needs of Jerusalem arose out of the persecution that the church experienced. You read about some of that in the book of Acts. Paul himself was one of the ringleaders in persecution, arresting the saints, taking their property, um, treating them poorly. But also there was that matter of um, uh, famine that came as a result of drought conditions. You read about Agabus, the prophet who spoke of the, the, the famine that would come. And again, you see the churches uh, taking up a collection uh, for the saints in Jerusalem and delivering that by the hands of Paul and of Barnabas. And so this was not a matter that was ever far from Paul's thoughts. And you remember at the uh, Jerusalem Council that's recorded in uh, Galatians chapter 2 I'm sorry, it's not the Galatian it's it's not the Jerusalem Council the Jerusalem Council is um, Acts 15 but in Galatians chapter 2 when Paul speaks of his prior um, involvement with the Jerusalem elders those who were reputed to be pillars and leaders in the church. Let me get to Galatians. Uh, you see at the end of Galatians 1 and verse uh, verse 2, chapter 2 and verse 10, uh, you find that uh, they had um, given to Paul the right hand of fellowship. Uh, verse 9, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. So part of what the church is to be concerned about are the needs of the poor. And that's something clear from the religion of the Old Testament and Paul being a Jew well-schooled in the teaching of the Old Testament is simply reflecting the great concern of God's people uh, that are to have with regard to poverty, with regard to the poverty-stricken in Israel. You read through the law and you see the provision was made landowners who even were able to extend their fields by the fact that somebody got into some financial problem and needed to sell their property. At the end of seven years, you had to give it back to their original owners. You just couldn't have uh, increase of wealth uh, uh, just to suit yourself. It's God's land. God gave it in his grant to the nation, and God's going to tell you how to use it. And part of the way that the people of Israel were instructed to use their land was <laughs> we have a field out here with the corn, and they're going to come by you know, sometime, I guess, towards the fall. They're going to cut all that down and use it for their purposes. But if this was Israel of the Old Testament, they, uh, first of all, had to leave the corners of the field um, unharvested. And they had to also not pick up any of the gleanings, any of the corn that dropped from the, the stalks and was just in the, the field. They, they couldn't take it in. That was for the poor. 
and the poor is really defined in the book of Deuteronomy in particular, it's in terms of the, of the stranger, the alien, the person who has no roots or home in the land. He's just a resident alien, and uh, hence he perhaps is just doing day labor, but he's not a rich person. He needs a little bit of something to supplement. His, his, that's for him. And you also have the widow, uh, who is uh, uh, like Naomi in the book of Ruth. Uh, sending Ruth down to um, follow the har- the people that were harvesting uh, the fields uh, to bring in the um, uh, to bring in the uh, things that were left in the field and the things that were in the corners of the field uh, and she was a diligent worker in that and attracted uh, the attention of Boaz of course and you read that story in the book of Ruth and it all has that background of concern for the poor Naomi was a poor woman and she was a poor widow and uh, hence Ruth was out there gleaning in the fields uh, to meet the needs of the poor and the fields were to be left for them and also you would have uh, the orphan as well as another part of the um, those who God had a special uh, place in his heart for and God's people would have a special place in, our heart, in their hearts those are the people that are most vulnerable in the society and most needful in the society and in the society of Jesus in the church we have those kinds of people And we can't be indifferent to their needs. And Paul was not indifferent to the need of the saints in in, um, Jerusalem, even though that was not the focus of his ministry. It was the Gentile world and establishing churches. He couldn't just say, well, these churches should exist on their own with no debt for the fact that the gospel came from Jerusalem. And um, there was a a union that existed between the Jerusalem saints and the saints in the Gentile world. He wanted to spark that sense of obligation, that sense of need to have um, the people, uh, once they were reconciled to him and clear about who he was and what the gospel is, to realize that part of this gospel and part of uh, their, their apostle put a premium upon this activity of ministering to the needy. church this week we were able to send a check out to the Southern Baptist Relief Fund for the people that were affected by the um, floods in eastern Kentucky and that came as a result of the fact that we started to do a compassion fund and encourage God's people to remember the poor and uh, that money has been given I mean in a number of things uh, it was originally designed for people within the church but, but God really blessed this church we went through COVID with nobody losing a job and nobody really having any pressing needs uh, but we had this money and this money we've been able to distribute we don't want to keep it in the bank it's doing no good in the bank we want it to be doing good where it can be done and you know we're not a rich church and we're not a big church but God gave you a heart to do those things and that's an evidence of the grace of God and one of the things you see in this passage is that ten times in chapters 8 and 9 Paul uses the word charis the word that's translated grace this is two passages that are filled with grace that giving is a grace. The attitude in which we give is a grace that's given from God. And that's important. It's not the amount. It's the attitude. It's the heart. God's concerned with the heart of the giver that we should be cheerful givers and we should be people that give out of a sense of love and what we've been given in Christ. Uh, the gospel, Jesus said, freely you've received, freely give. That the gospel is a gift of God's grace and uh, God has given uh, his all in giving his son and Christ has come and 
you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich rich with all the glory he had with the Father from the foundation of the world yet for your sakes he became poor came into this world as a uh, not in a, in a king's palace not as a son of a, uh, an emperor he came as a son of poor uh, Judean um, I'm sorry uh, Galilean a people a carpenter and his wife and um went about in the work that he did and he said the foxes have their holes the birds of the air have their nests um, but the son of man has not a place to lay his head and so uh, he became poor and the ultimate poverty was that he was stripped of his very clothing and his dignity as he was exposed uh, uh, to the justice of the, the Roman Empire in the most unjust way in the way that he was taken out and crucified uh, he became poor for our sakes that we through his poverty might be made rich. And so uh, this is not ungospel. This is gospel. This is gospel through and through. This is manifestations of God's grace in the lives of his people. And Paul has every, um, he, he wants the people to know his concern for this ministry, the, the centrality of this ministry. Um, again, we are people that tend to respond in ways that are un, uh, unjust and unfair. We, we, we respond to our, our culture. And when we see the, the culture around us, what's the culture in the church or the culture in the world, maybe saying things that, uh, that trouble us, uh, then we run to the opposite extreme. Remember the social gospel back in the, the 19th century, the Walter Rauschenbach, Ra- Ra- I can't even get his name out correctly, but anyway, uh, the Walter R., <laughs> who was one of the leaders of that movement that uh, you know, looked to encourage Christians to get involved in labor movements and looked to uh, see a greater measure of um, involvement in the concern of the poor in the inner cities and the rest. And not all of that's bad, and not all of that is wrong. And, but you know, so often what those people did was they abandoned the, the gospel of God's grace in the process. And uh, that, was not a good, that was not a good move. And but what uh, uh, believers did was they responded in the opposite direction. Let's just go after the souls of people. Forget the fact that they're embodied souls. Forget the fact that they are hungry and they are needy. And, and Jesus puts an emphasis upon the fact that we do remember the poor. And Paul's doing that very thing. And uh, uh, hence, it is uh, well suited for the gospel. Another thing that does connect. These chapters with what preceded is not only the, uh, well, there's a couple more things. Um, not only the fact that the churches of Macedonia are involved and they've been spoken about, uh, not only that grace is a prime factor, and that's, of course, spoken about throughout the length and breadth of the letter, ten times in chapters eight and nine. He's talking about money, he's talking about the grace, the grace of giving, the grace of, of, uh, that is involved with what you do with your money, how it affects your heart, and the heart opening up the hand to give, opening up the purse to give uh, to the needy even out of poverty, uh, people were giving to the needy saints in Jerusalem, but another thing is the presence of Titus in both of the sections remember Titus was sent by Paul to the Corinthians because his painful visit to them did not realize the ends he had and he felt his presence would not be suitable to any good, so Paul takes off and he writes a letter he writes a grievous letter. So he had a painful visit and a grievous letter. And now Paul is waiting for Titus to come and give him the report. He sent Titus there. Now sometimes, uh, again, your own personal presence or things aren't working out might not be good. People are tired of hearing your voice. Send them another voice. Send them Titus. So Titus comes to Corinth and um, the people receive him and the people manifested their love for Paul. 
and their repentance and doing the things that Paul desired them to do. And, and so Titus is involved in the whole prior context. He's also involved here. Because Paul has intentions to send Titus back to them. And not on a mission so much of reparation or repairing the uh, strained relationship he had with the Corinthians. Now he's concerned to send Titus back uh, to complete the, the offering. To bring... Um, uh, uh, the offering of uh, 16 of chapter 8. But thanks be to God who put it into the heart of Titus. The same earnest care I have for you. You not only accept our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he's going to you of his own accord. Whither we're sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. You don't know who that is, but it could be a policy who knows who, who that is. And not only that, he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that's being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. So Titus is coming back, so get the, get the offering prepared. Get it finished so that when he comes, you're ready to give him the offering so that we might move on and go to Jerusalem with this offering for the needy saints of Jerusalem. So Titus is involved in both sections. We also say something of the argument that Paul makes in the preceding letter is also found here. You know, part of Paul's argument is, you know, the the uh, super apostles, these false apostles that we read about later on. Uh, he doesn't mention them in the early chapters, but you see their input, imprint. You see their influence was they were uh, calling upon the church to make judgments by appearance, not in truth. And part of the appearance was that Paul is just a, a real mess of a guy. Look at all the trouble he gets into. He goes to, you know, uh, Achaia, or I'm sorry, he goes uh, in Asia. Uh, he says in chapter 1 that um, we, don't, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. We despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. And again, Paul's talking about that again and again and again, of his afflictions, of his hardships, of all the troubles he went through in the preaching of the gospel. And the false apostles were saying, what kind of an apostle is that? I mean, come on, really. If he's Jesus' apostle, would Jesus allow him to go through that? Again, the Corinthian church was not an afflicted church. Somehow or another, the Corinthian church ex- escaped the sort of things you read about in the letters that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. There the Thessalonians received the word of God in the midst of much affliction. Read about affliction that took place. We saw it last week in, 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 um, when he came to uh, both Thessalonica and he came to Berea. In both places he had to leave because of uh, persecution from the synagogue, from the Jews. He came to Corinth and the synagogue tried to stir up trouble and, and Gallio didn't care for any of these things. Gallio, the governor, basically said, I'm not, this is a matter of your own law, Jews. Um, he didn't care for these things. Not that he didn't care for the gospel. He just didn't care for these religious things. He was going to make the religious things a test for his government. Well, what side are you on in this religious thing? And I'm going to mediate. So they couldn't get any satisfaction from the governor. In uh, Thessalonica, they served up the whole city. In Corinth, they couldn't. They didn't. The Roman authorities wouldn't give them any place. And so you have a church that didn't experience the kind of afflictions that other churches had experienced. Um, And and so they looked at Paul as, well, how come he's going through all these things? There's nothing we know about. And uh, Paul is making it clear to them that the result of his afflictions was the fruits of righteousness. It was the grace that was being manifested. Now, 
we felt we had the sentence of death, we received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but God who raises the dead. And he goes into all those contrasts, you know, we're afflicted but not, not, not destroyed. <laughs> you know, we're troubled, we're not overwhelmed. We have all these problems, but not, it's not as bad as it could be because we have God in the midst of it. We have experienced much of the presence of God and the grace. Don't judge according to appearance. Don't judge according to appearance. Well, that sort of thing of good coming out of affliction, of troubles bringing manifestations of God's presence, this couldn't be, but the fact of the reality of God's presence with his people, uh, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace that was given to the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction. Again, the Macedonians were afflicted. Severe test of affliction. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. They got afflictions, they got extreme poverty. And the afflictions and extreme poverty probably all had to do with persecution for the sake of the gospel. The troubles that the gospel met in Macedonia. Instead of turning them away from the gospel, they sought to again show God's grace. The grace of God manifested in the churches of Macedonia in the severe test of affliction, the abundance of joy, and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They gave according to their means, and as I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor, the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. It's a grace to take part in the relief of the saints. And so again, the whole matter of afflictions yielding grace, the afflictions yielding the fruits of grace is manifest here. Afflictions have an ability to soften the hard heart and to make us get out of ourselves. You know, when you see that you're afflicted, you know, you could have a little bit of a pity party but you look to see the afflictions of your neighbors and you, you run towards them in their need I saw an interesting movie I wouldn't recommend it for a couple reasons but um, I was glad I saw it for that it had this interesting message it began with a, a guy who had been disgraced who decided life wasn't worth living went up to the top of the highest building I think it was in London and it's New Year's Eve and he's about to jump off and he's, he's standing on the ledge there's a woman who makes uh, her appearance and she says uh, will you take long <laughs> but she's going to be next in line and just as that happens there's a third that comes and there's a fourth that comes and you begin to look you're not the only one in the world that has problems <laughs> you're not the only one in the world that's going through a sense that life isn't worth living and so these four people that meet on a roof all planning to commit suicide enter into a pact with one another not to kill themselves until the 14th of February which is the next, I guess, great date that people kill themselves. Suicide New Year's Eve. Second is uh, Valentine's Day. And uh, I guess it's a, a sense no one loves me. Everyone else has people that love me and, and I'm not loved. And, and people who go through a sense of misery you know, can commiserate with one another not that misery loves company but when misery sees other people worse off than you then your own burden is lightened and you're concerned to meet their needs you're concerned to serve them I think it was Carl Menninger the uh, psychi- uh, psychologist of uh, this 
the 20th century. Uh, he wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin, and I don't think it was, I don't know that it was in that book. I think it was the fact that somebody uh, made this question in, in a seminar or something. I think I heard either Jay Adams or somebody else say this, that he was asked the question, uh, what would you do uh, to somebody that's in the midst of uh, deep, deep depression? See somebody about to uh, you know, take their lives. What, do you, what would you do to help them? It says, I take him to the poorest person in town and, and, uh, and, and, and expose them to their misery and, and make it their task to help them. So, you know, part of what depression is is just getting all inward. It's getting involved in ourselves. And something about the reality of afflictions that are, are, people we love are going through, it moves us out of ourselves. And suddenly our problems aren't so great. And we become oriented towards others and that's what the gospel calls us to and um, that's what the churches of uh, Macedonia had done in the midst of their afflictions they said oh yeah we have afflictions yeah they're bad yeah yeah, we feel the law yeah poverty but look at those Judeans look at those people in Jerusalem look at what they're going through we've got to help them they got out of themselves that's God's grace at work in the hearts of the Macedonians. Okay, well, that's basically an introduction to the two chapters, give you a little sense of the, the unity with the things that come before, and also a sense of um, the importance of the matter in the heart of the Apostle Paul. Uh, before we move on, I've read some of it, but we'll go over some of it again. Any questions before we proceed? Well, um, Let's move forward. Again, Paul addresses the congregation and he calls to mind the example of the churches of Macedonia and what he sees is the grace of God that's been given uh, to them. Again, it's nothing that they can boast in, nothing they can say, look at how great we are, we're just a great church and that we have given so much. This is all an aspect of God's grace at work in these churches of Macedonia. And uh, Paul describes the situation in Macedonia as being that of a severe test of affliction. They've gone through a severe test of affliction. And instead of licking their wounds, instead of being inward, instead of just um, going deeper and deeper in a spiral of depression, it speaks about their abundance of joy in the midst of affliction. And he repeats that in the Thessalonian letter. Again, Thessalonica was a Macedonian city. And you remember in the First Thessalonians chapter 1, when Paul speaks of the way in which the word of God came to them, um, he says in verse 6 of chapter 1, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. Severe test of affliction. There was much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit and Paul replicates that expression a severe test of affliction in chapter 8 and verse 2 and yet abundance of joy a joy authored by the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit and then he adds again it's extreme poverty let's go back to the severe test of affliction part of it is extreme poverty And yet this abundance of joy has led to that extreme poverty leading to an overflow in a wealth of generosity. 
on their part. I didn't count them all, but I know there's a number of times that Paul uses this word for overflow. There's just uh, an abounding, an abundance that takes place uh, where God's grace is present. There's an overflow, an abundance of love and care and concern and interest in the needs of others. And that gave rise to them digging deep in their pockets, even in the midst of extreme poverty. Yet Jesus' great example of giving was the widow with her two mites, gave more than them all. Um, Again, God judges the heart, and God sees the intention of the heart. And um, that woman gave out of love, that woman gave out of a desire to honor God and serve God, and um, the the Macedonians gave out of a desire uh, to please God and to bless his people to serve others in the sake of the gospel they gave according to their means as I can testify there's a means test to this again though not everybody was dirt poor a lot of them were dirt poor the church as a whole was a dirt poor church but yet there were people that had some means had some savings they had some things they could give and uh, they had a regular income perhaps coming in and uh, regular ability to to give and so what they did was they gave in accordance with what they had they gave in accordance with their means and Paul can testify and beyond their means not just what was required but above over and above what was required that's the reason I don't ever get into 10% or the tithe Um, I know it was an Old Testament law but I really think that our attitude should be not just limited to a number. Our attitude should be to give in accordance with our ability and beyond. As God enables us, we can go beyond uh, for the purposes of giving. And um, to know the joy of giving and to know the good that giving can give to others. Uh, so there is this moving beyond just the minimum. And God's people are a people who seek to give over and above and then not just uh, the reality of their giving but uh, they pled with Paul <laughs> don't, don't exclude our church as you go around the Roman Empire and you go to the various cities and you're taking up this offering um, don't forget us they begged us earnestly for, for the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints and again they may have been in the position we were in in terms of the Kentucky floods I mean that's a massive amount of money that's going to be taken to help people in any appreciable way and so most people never get fully compensated for all that they've lost as a result of these floods we might say to ourselves what's the use of us being involved well again it's a small amount we gave in comparison to the greatness of the need but if every church felt that they were just exempt from giving because it's, we can only give a small amount, then really nothing will ever get done. Um, our, our little stream of funds that we went to Kentucky is, is, is joining what is coming from all places. And, and we should view it as an opportunity for us to be part of that, not to be excluded in the grace of giving for a need that is present, even though it's a small amount again it's not the amount that's the pivotal issue it's the attitude of the heart in the giving and here's a people who manifest their heart 
in their own appeal to their apostle uh, to take part in this relief. We don't want to be excluded. We can't do it all. We join the other churches in helping the need and meeting the need of the Jerusalem saints. And, and then this giving was not just the giving because they saw need in others. Um, it did respond to the need they saw in others and wanted to be part out of love of ministering to that need. But this was a religious giving. This was a giving that just didn't only have need and people and their concern in view. It had the Lord in, 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 in their view as well. And Paul says in verse 5, and this not as we expected, but you know, we would have been satisfied if we went by and we got the money, but we saw something more. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. You see, this ministry to the saints in Jerusalem sort of cemented their understanding of this relationship they had with those people, of the union they had with those people. But that union they had with those people was not an ethnic thing. It wasn't a thing that pertained to national identity or common history or common experiences. Or No, it was the gospel. It was their union with Christ. It was their commitment to Jesus. These are Jesus' people. And so this was an act of religious service first to the Lord. They gave themselves to the Lord. And then by the will of God to his apostles. They're the ones taking up the offering. So we have a, a bond again with these apostles. And, and that's very pertinent to the Corinthians, don't you think? That the, that the Macedonians experience a, a deepening of their bond to the Lord through the needy people of the Lord. And then to their apostle who was the instrument God was using to meet that need. There was a deepening bond uh, to their apostle, and certainly these Corinthians that were always having problems with bonding with the apostle. I mean, some of them did. First letter. Some of you say, I'm a Paul. Those guys are taken care of. <laughs> They're already well, well bonded to their apostle. And Paul has to tell them, you know, you have many teachers in Christ. I'm, I'm your father in Christ. I'm, I'm God's, I'm Christ's apostolic representative sent to you. you. You know, you need to have a good relationship to one who is an apostle. Um, because they're giving you an authoritative revelation from, from God. And you suspect the apostle. Inevitably, you come to suspect the revelation. And so there was this union with Christ that led to union with his people. And led to a union with his apostle in a deepening sense of oneness. They gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. He says in verse 6, Accordingly, we urge Titus, that as he had started, so we should complete among you this act of grace. Again, Titus is going to be Paul's representative in um, taking up the offering and even he said the joy in seeing the repentance, he'll have the joy of seeing um, the monies that are collected for the needs of the saints. Again, in the midst of a church that's so troubled by money in so many ways, so often it's excessive monies that are given for unworthy things and unworthy causes, 
I mean, uh, maybe I'm alone, but I just tend to to get very grieved at what I read about in terms of the salaries and incomes and lifestyles of the pastors of churches. It's just an outrage. and almost makes someone who just thinks that's not right to say, well, I'll just be content with my wage in the midst of my poverty and not tell anybody in the church of the needs I have. And so often we don't like to talk about money. We don't want to talk about the needs in the church. And members of the church, they're experiencing deep financial troubles and problems, some of it of their own doing, but some of it not of their own doing. And even if it's of their own doing, the church should be giving them help in terms of counsel, in terms of helping them to handle their monies better and, and you know, to do better and be yet need exists and we need to be responsive to those needs and we need to be um, transparent about those needs but again it's not just a question of, of avarice it's not a question of avarice at all it's not a question of being a lover of money. It's not that at all. It's a question of just recognizing that grace that is rooted in the gospel will be manifested in what we do with our monies. You know, if you see a person's bank book uh, or you see his checking account and what they do with their money, you pretty much can tell what's important to them. What's important to them. Things that are important to them will be reflected in the things that they're uh, spending their money towards. And uh, people who have no heart, though they might speak largely of their love of Christ and the gospel and of the goodness of the Lord, that should be evidenced in their patterns of giving. And so it's an act of grace that gets completed among them. And, And there should be no disparity between Titus going to Corinth and getting blessed by the reality of seeing their repentance. Look at the work of God among the Corinthians in their clearing of themselves, in their manifesting repentance. It's not a, a, a repentance, repentance not to be repented of a godly repentance. And he sees it firsthand. And he's able to report to Paul with gladness what he saw of the spiritual fruit of, of, of repentance in the lives of the Corinthians. And it shouldn't be a real difference of the fact that he says, I went to Corinth, look what they gave. Not, oh, look at what we got. I don't know if any of you ever saw that uh, movie made back in the 70s, I think it was. Um, Marjo, I think was its name. And it was about uh, a Pentecostal healer, evangelist. He gained notoriety, I think, back in the 50s. It's this little kid who was a preacher and a prophet. His parents were in the business of evangelism and going from place to place to place. But Marjo was planning to make his exit from evangelical work, from going to be an evangelist. And he wanted to uh, ultimately break into the movies. And he did. Back in the 70s, you'll see uh, Marjo Gortner was his name. And he appeared in a number of films and movies. And that's where his heart lied. Because he didn't believe Christianity. This is all a game to him. And so what he did, his first efforts to get into show business, is he had a group of cinematographers and people follow him around at his various ministries to film it, to film the way he did his ministry. 
And, you know, a lot of the scenes, you see this thing, was afterward when they got the money, when the collection was taken up. Of course, you know, you see people that go to these places, going from place to place, saying, you know, I don't want you to give me a check for my services. I just want a love offering. I just want a free will offering. And you might think, well, that's a person who's operating on a faith mission. He's not asking for a check. He's not asking for an amount. He's just trusting the Lord for what he will give. Well, tests really showed that that's the way to get far greater than anything the church would give in a prearranged agreement. You know, because you, people want to show their love. And they want to give that love offering. And just, uh, it's evidence they come away with a whole lot more. And that's what happened in this thing. And they knew it, and they were boasting about it. He and the pastor of the church. And all that they took in. And, uh, oh yeah, we're in the business of just giving people hope. <laughs> it's not because we really believe anything. Well, we give them hope. And so we feel we've earned this great take, this great money. Well, it's not this avaricious joy that Titus had. Look, Paul, look at the take we took. Look at the mouth we got. Well, again, we're just vehicles through which that money goes to the need. We're not taking the money for ourselves. We're not taking the money to put in our retirement account. We're taking the money to minister tangibly to the needs of the people. Kind of like our attitude. It doesn't do any good in the bank. It has to be out there doing what it's been given to do to meet the needs of people. And so, you know, Titus would have rejoiced. Not because, look at what I took. Well, look at the grace of God in the hearts of the people. They gave of their own accord. They gave out of, out of love, out of a heart to, of desire uh, to meet the needs of the Jerusalem saints and to manifest their unity with the Jerusalem saints and with their apostle who was taking up this word, this work in the name of the Lord and their union, of course, with the Lord who will say to us in that day, Inasmuch as you've done this unto one of these least of my disciples, you've done it unto me. This is a service that's ultimately done to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, as you excel in everything, all the things we think of the hallmarks of Christian discipleship, excel in faith, excel in speech, excel in knowledge. Oh man, we need to excel in knowledge. What what books have you read this week? Uh, How much theological precision can we come to in our ability to articulate the things of our Christian faith how well can we speak about it in all earnestness in our love for you and all of these things in which we might see um, how Christian activities are to be expressed and to abound Paul says see that you excel and this act of grace also. And it's kind of like Paul's acting to the Corinthians in the way that the Jerusalem elders and apostles and pillars acted towards him. Paul went and he spoke about his ministry among the Gentiles, about how the Gentiles had received the word of God and how the Gentiles had come to uh, love the reality of uh, the things that he was proclaiming. And he could speak it for hours about what things God did through them among the Gentiles, bringing them to faith in Christ. And yet the apostle says, hey, we see God at work in what you're doing. And extended them the right hand of fellowship. And then they say, hey, before you go, don't forget 
to remember the poor. It's almost what Paul's doing. You can abound in all of these graces, and that's all good, and that's all wonderful, and that's all something we could all acknowledge. But part of the picture is also this question of ministry to need, compassion, concern for the needy. Don't omit it. Don't leave it out. Don't think you've excelled in the graces of the Christian life while your heart is cold towards the needs of others. Oh, poor people are poor because of their own failure to be industrious and diligent. And it's just part of their genes. They, they, they grew up poor. They're going to give birth to poor kids. And it's just cyclical generational poverty. And th- that's them. We live in the suburbs. What do we need to be concerned about them for? And Paul's saying that's completely missing the whole question of what... Jesus did. Jesus could have said, look, I'm in the glory of the heavens and I have all of the, my, uh, my glory from before the angels and those people in the earth, they're just for their own fault, their own rebellion, it's their own sin, it's their own failure to make their hearts right. Well, leave them alone. It doesn't, doesn't bother me. Jesus said, I couldn't enjoy the glories that were mine from the foundation of the world while the people in the world made in the image and likeness of God remained lost. He came as the good shepherd to seek out the sheep. He came to partake in the reality of life in a fallen world. It shouldn't be that Christians don't know any poor people, don't care about any poor people, don't have any Love for poor people don't have any desire to give to the needs of poor people. It just, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. And again, it's all a question again of not what we don't have, but what we have. He's going to want to say that. It's a question of our ability. He's going to want to say that. But it all begins here. It begins in the heart. It begins in the way that we view things, how we view the world. See that you excel in this act of grace also he says I don't say this as a command but to prove by your the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine again love's easy to talk about it's easy to use the language of love where the acts of love are absent again John in 1 John chapter 1 he says that very thing um, we could talk about love and we can love in word but not in deed and in truth um, look at Paul's words in chapter 3 and verse 16 of the book of 1st John he says by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers but if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him how does the love of God abide in him little children let us not love in word or in talk but in deed and truth that's not to say we should never say I love you <laughs> but it's to also act in love to do the, the, the acts of love to just talk about love and 
So I, I, I love the church as I sit at home and uh, read my Sunday paper. I love Christians everywhere. Well, I love no Christians specifically anywhere. Um, we could all talk about having this large heart of love, but yet it's proven when need exists. And how do we respond to it? If you have this world's goods, you have the ability, you see your brother in need, comes across your path, like the Samaritan who saw the man taken amongst the robbers. You respond to it. You don't turn the other way with some religious excuse or some cold-hearted excuse or if if he was really someone worthy to be ministered to he wouldn't be in the fix he's presently in probably got there by his own doing anyhow probably got drunk and you just walk the other way no you respond to the need that's how you love not just in word and in talk but in deed and in truth as Paul says it's in this we prove the earnestness to others that your love is genuine I'm not just going to tell others hey the Corinthians are a congregation filled with love filled with loving people yeah well what do they do with regard to the ministry you took up for the saints in Jerusalem well they, they took a pass on that one <laughs> they didn't just really seem to have an interest in it at all that simply would again violate uh, what would you vitiate against it would just be incongruous with or inconsistent with any claim to be a congregation of abounding love. Well, we'll look further into the rich teaching that Paul gives. Imagine, amazing how Paul could take a subject as uh, pedestrian as money and giving and turn it into a passage where you have quotable verses that you put on your coffee cups or you put on your Christmas cards um, because they speak of the Incarnation. And they speak of the God who loves the cheerful giver. I mean, so many quotable statements that Paul makes in this passage. Um, Again, because great spiritual interests and issues do really call us in this whole question of how we approach uh, material things, how we approach the whole question of the the grace of giving. Our time is gone. Thank you for your attention. Let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to him in prayer. Father, we do give you thanks for this opportunity to look into the scriptures and this very challenging passage that so often we can just overlook. Just think that giving is just something that is very commercial, but it's really not, Lord, and we pray we would see it. We would see the spiritual roots of the giving of the Macedonians and see that... uh, in a real sense, where our heart is rooted in, in the love of the gospel and the love of your people and the love of your name, that this love should be reflected in the way we treat others, in the way we regard the needs of others, and the way we respond to those needs by your grace. So teach us, we pray, not just to give and just in a sense of a transaction, but to give out of motives that are filled with gospel truth and gospel reality. We thank you for what you've given us so freely in your grace. Teach us, we pray, to be gracious givers. 
We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless us as we greet one another this morning, as we enter into a time of fellowship and enter into the morning hour of worship. We'd ask you to hear us as we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.